Hey, everybody. Welcome to Sunday School, a Bible study podcast brought to you by The Pillar. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and you are listening to a new season of Sunday School where we are going to unpack a a really important book in Scripture, St. Paul's Letter to the Romans. Joining me is, of course, our Sunday School teacher and Roman extraordinaire, Dr. Scott Powell. Scott, no, how are not you? Roman, not Roman in the least. You've got a very I, patrician nose, though. I mean, you have a patrician. Thank you. It's Slavic. Yeah, okay, but, well, you know, I maybe I know. They, far be it for me to know about there, the know. nasal stereotypes, Scott, of European, <laughs> the European peoples. But you're also looking. We're recording this uh, episode of Sunday School at the end of the summer, and you're looking very tan, which gives you a sort of Romanesque glow, if it's you will. Just because we had to turn off the AC in my we office, did. And it's real hot. <laughs> it is pretty hot. Yeah. But Scott, we are not alone here because no. uh, I am so excited to announce that in this season of Sunday School, we are adding another member of the class. Another voice. Another another voice in the say. room, uh, another microphone at the table. Uh, our producer is coming out from behind the mixing board to join us um, in the studio and in front of the microphone. she's still behind she's still the mixing board. She's still behind the mixing board. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm multitasking. You know, in theory, she's coming out from behind the mixing board to join us for another season, uh, for this season of Sunday School, uh, Kate Oliveira. And Kate, I'm so excited that you're going to be on this season of Sunday School with us. I'm so excited too. I cannot wait. It's been so fun editing this show and now being on it, being able to talk with you guys. It's going to be great. I'm sure you just, do you yell at us when you're editing and and get mad and try to (laughs) interact? (laughs) I definitely have reactions. Most of them are laughing and just, you know, so it'll be, it'll be good to add that to the show. And Kate is going to kind of share with me some of the hosting duties of this season of Sunday School, but I think it'll just be fun to have you in, I mean, I've sort of been in class all by myself, so I think it'll be fun to have you in class. Right, exactly. It's it's been getting awkward. (laughs) (laughs) So like like every time Scott's like asked me the question, I'm like, oh, anybody know? Yeah, exactly. Anybody know what I got? It's a real sort of Bueller, Bueller moment. Um, but our, our Sunday school teacher, of course, if you're listening to this show for the first time, or this is your first season of Sunday school, our Sunday school teacher is uh, is Dr. Scott Powell, uh, really a scripture scholar extraordinaire. So Scott, for people who don't know what makes you cool, would you just tell them a little bit about why you're qualified to teach us about the Bible? Oh my. Um, I have a degree. I So I... <laughs> I mean, just on paper, it works. Scott, uh, no, you were I'm a professor. A, uh, you were a professor yeah. at the St. John Vianney too. Seminary in Denver, Colorado. Is I that right? Am, yeah, I'm a professor of theology here at SJV. I teach scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, I get to teach it to the guys who are going to be our future priests and yeah. our homilists, uh, which I love. It's a dream job for me. I've been teaching the Bible in one way or another to audiences from elementary school students to adult education to college to undergrad to grad students to seminarians for decades now. And I just love trying to make the scriptures come alive. Yeah. Well, thanks be to God. And this show has been a lot of fun. And I think you've done a great job of being our teacher Thank here. You. So this season of Sunday School, I'm actually nervous for because Good. after we finish Psalms, you, you. you pitched, you were like, I want to do Romans. And Romans to me feels like such a theologically complex book. Yeah, and it is. D- disagreement about Romans is the source of, you know, for example, the Protestant Reformation. I mean, like, you got to get it right. Or yeah, at least yeah, connected. Yeah, I mean, you know, no, there's very a lot much of connected. There. I think it was it was used and manipulated in that sense. But okay, well, I'm we'll looking forward to later. learning about that. But you got to get Romans right, and there's a yes, lot of that's it's true. theologically rich and like theologically dense. The Book of Romans, yeah, in my right. mind. So I'm that's I'm right. nervous about this for the show. Yeah, good. But uh, tell me tell me about the about the letter of the Romans, and then how we're going to learn about it this season. Yeah. So there's two things I want to do in this episode. Um, so I, I I hope for this one to kind of be an introductory episode, so we can talk about really two things. There's two things we need to address. One, one we got to talk about Paul a little bit, because the thing that is unique about the letters, and I don't want to get into this too much yet, I don't want to get the cart before the horse, 
Um, you can't really study the letters outside of the person who wrote the letters and the person, the people to whom the letters are written. And one of the pitfalls of studying something like this, and I think the reason that should make it more palatable and answer your questions, is that a letter like Romans gets theologically dense and complex and potentially abstract when we forget that it actually is just a piece of mail from somebody from a pastor to his congregation who are actually dealing with stuff. And so this So letter, we should think about Romans as the, the pastoral letter to the Romans. That will help us. That's absolutely right. That's okay. exactly what it is, which means on one level, although Romans is theologically complex, which it is... It wasn't written to theologians. This wasn't written to other priests. It was written to Joe Schmoes in the pew, or, you know, or on the couches, right, in the house churches, to whom this was written. So it wasn't, it's not meant to be high theology. It's meant to be theology to answer some questions that everyday folks are dealing with and struggling with that, you know, ends up being canonized to Scripture because what he says is so important. And, and yet it contains, I mean, like, so what's super yes. interesting to me about Scripture is that it's written to address particular problems, yeah. but yeah. through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, yeah. so many of the foundations of our faith are contained yeah, that's right. um, in the book of Romans, and then, like, so much of the magisterium is probably an Absolutely. explication of the book of yeah. Romans. Is that fair? Absolutely. So so I want, I want to get to that. So I want to talk about the nature. I want to talk about Paul. First Paul. Because we can't really understand this without Did understanding you know, who wrote it. A lot of people don't know this, but... Uh, his name had previously been Saul. I see. I <laughs> I have some debate on that. Kate, did you? You're coming out as a class as the uh, teacher's pet. Teacher's coming in hot. Pet. Here. This, uh, but I, but Scott says I'm wrong. Well, I I don't know for sure. Scott's going to demythologize Paul for us pretty quick. It I might like. demythologize this, and I'm not sure. I could be wrong on this, but I. So there's a lot of people in the Bible whose names are are like outright changed. So Abram becomes Abraham. Mm -hmm. Sarai becomes Sarah. Mm -hmm. uh, um, David becomes King David. We learned that last well, uh, yes, semester. That's true. Uh, Simon becomes Peter. Mm -hmm. That's a straight up name change. Saul, if you go through the book of Acts of the Apostles, he kind of goes back and forth. And I get the impression, although I, I'm not 100%, that whenever he's with a Jewish population, he goes by Saul, which is a Jewish name. Mm. And whenever he's with a non-Jewish population, he goes by Paul, which is um, a, a Hellenized version of the name. So Ooh. I think it's his being all things to all people. I don't think it's a straight up name change. I think he's... Using a different name. Would he have experienced context. more? Would he have experienced among a Hellenized audience if he used a Jewish name, anti-Semitism? I don't. Is know. this like, like you know how in the like yeah. for much of the history of Hollywood, like yeah. Jewish actors yeah, changed their names because they didn't want to experience anti-Semitism in Hollywood? You know what I'm talking about, Kate? Yeah. That's a question I've never really considered. Which is, I don't, I don't know, JD. Um, I think in certain places, yes, in certain places, no. I suppose there are certain, yeah, there's certainly places where. I mean, the Roman Empire. I don't see. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. The Roman Empire was not a fan of the Jews. Mm -hmm. um, we don't. We know that for sure. So, yeah, maybe there is something to that. I actually hadn't considered that part of it, but I'm fascinated by okay, it. Okay, so I'm the first thing we're going to learn is about Paul, sometimes called Saul. Yeah. What's the second thing we're going to do in this episode? The nature of letters. letters. What are letters doing? Mm -hmm. Like what? What? It ha, it ha, which seems self-explanatory, but in the context of the Bible, it's not. Um, and the knowing, epistolary mystery. Yeah. Do you guys know what epistle means? Letter? letter? Yeah, it just means letter. Okay. <laughs> Great. So, yeah. so Nailed it! <laughs> yes. yes! Yeah, you guys killed it. But for the sake of ease, I'm probably just going to call like them letters. Really smart. <laughs> yeah. I think epistles throws people off sometimes because it yeah. sounds like, oh, that's something, you know, kind of high and theological. It just means letter in Greek. So, but I no use one... it a lot. Like if I if I text my wife something and she doesn't write back, I'm like, didn't you get my epistle? <laughs> An epistle. <laughs> my to... epistolary text. <laughs> <laughs> to Kate. Right, to Kate. <laughs> Maybe we should rearrange this. Okay. And now, now I'm thinking maybe we should talk about letters first. Okay. Yeah, let's do that. Okay. okay. So, okay. Here's what I want to say, and then I want to – I'm not going to call it a game, but I want to do an exercise. I want to write way you labor. a letter. Sorry. 
Well, I did write you a letter. Okay. Um, I wrote you a letter and I want to, Are you to nervous, read Kate? it to you. I am nervous. I'm super <laughs> nervous. <laughs> Why? Oh, this is just... <laughs> anytime the teacher brings in a new activity, yeah, I'm right, like, I'm going to be really bad at telling right, you how to make a peanut butter and jelly yeah, sandwich. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> but also, what if the letter's like, dear JD, you are terrible. Right. Oh, <laughs> I thought this was the best forum to bring <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. We're actually airing all of our because grievances. before we started recording this show, Scott... <laughs> Gave me some helpful, constructive criticism for making this show, oh, and so Here now I'm worried go. it's going to be in the so letter. Did Kate. Like, yeah, so Kate did too. Kate man. did too. That's if right. If we're going down, Kate, you and I are going down together. <laughs> so uh, it was helpful and constructive criticism, but I don't want it in letter format. You know. Well, you'll you'll have to find <laughs> out. So I, let's put that aside. Okay, let's talk about letters. But here's the thing. Here's the thing about letters. Um, so for. We wow! What have we done? We've done a few seasons of Sunday School so far. Yeah, this is our this is our third official season with the Advent mini season. So it's our fourth. Yeah, that's right. Dive into Sunday School. So the two kind of first seasons were about gospels, right? Yep. The Advent mini season was going through some of the them. Advent mini season was awesome. If oh, you haven't listened to that, you should do it. Yeah. There's something about gospel story. The gospels are narratives, right? And narratives are by their very nature easier to sort of enter into because we it's like, like this stories. happened, that happened, this yeah, happened. We yeah, we like stories. We mm-hmm. like good guys, bad guys, plots. You know. There are also characters throughout most of the Bible that we can kind of put ourselves in the shoes of. Mm-hmm. So in the Gospels, right, you can you can look through the shoes of the apostles in their boneheadedness or, you know, Mary Magdalene or some other figure that we can kind of approach Jesus through. Or even in the Old Testament, right, you can sort of see the workings of, of Yahweh in the world through Abraham or Sarah or Isaac, or, you know, something. There's lots of on-ramps, right? But epistles are different in the sense that People don't know where to enter into them. They're kind mm-hmm. of hard. And they're hard by their very nature. Uh, they're hard by their nature for for a couple of reasons. So I think it's safe to say the majority of the big theological debates over the last however many centuries come – and, J.D., you pointed this out. They come out of the epistles. They come out of the letters. Why? Because the letters, I think it's safe to say, lend themselves most readily to misunderstanding. More than the other texts because do. you need to know the context more, would you say, for the letters yes. versus, yeah. Yes, but that's nuanced. There's a nuance to that. Because uh-huh. what, is, what is a letter by its very nature? A letter? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not... You see what I'm talking about? <laughs> no, I suddenly don't know what I'm <laughs> A note, written communication from one person to another to convey have ideas. You, have you ever received somebody else's mail in your mailbox? Yes. Like people that used to live in our house or whatever. Yeah, that used to live in your house yeah. or, or something like that. So right. you've received somebody else's mail, right? And if you receive somebody else's mail, then there's certain things that you can begin to deduce about that person. Like, well, I don't oh, open it. Oh. Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't but like ads. For God's sake. I mean, like, I don't mean like from their grandma. I mean like an, a political ad or like... And, you know, an advertisement for lawn care. Like, oh, it's like, like stuff it's like, like oh, wow, this person gets so many coupons from Cold Sun. I bet yeah, they, right. Yeah, I okay. bet they really like ice cream. Yeah. Or there's something from the Democratic Party. I wonder if they were, you know, there's certain things that you can kind of deduce from getting somebody else's mail. But you can, you have to be careful with what you deduce because you could be mistaken. You could be wrong, right? Or if you um, listen to somebody talking loudly on a cell phone, like in a subway or on a bus or something, right? You can you can try to deduce what's happening in that conversation, but on, cer- on a certain level, you're only getting one end of it, right? Mm. Yes. So a letter is by definition, well, a letter to be, I don't mean like a political mailing or like an ad, but for a letter to be a true letter, it's always a conversation yeah. between one, one party and another party. And so these letters, like you said, I think you said it in the podcast or maybe it was before we started recording, these are pastoral letters to congregations yeah, for yeah. the most part. Mm-hmm. 
There's a couple letters that are addressed to individuals, right? Timothy, Titus, the Peters. Um, but for the most part, letter to the Romans, for example, is to a church community gathering together in Rome. So it's like the archbishop of this diocese writing a pastoral letter to your parish. Except right? it isn't, right? Maybe this is the Paul part, but it isn't because Paul is not the bishop of Rome. Isn't it like, isn't it like hmm. the archbishop of Denver where we live writing a letter to the people of another place? Mm. Well, or maybe Paul is more like Fulton Sheen. He's a floating bishop and he can write a letter to whoever he wants. That's an interesting question. Cause yeah, Paul, but he is an apostle, right? By his own reckoning. But yeah, I guess it's safe to say he doesn't specifically have a C, but he is still, so the nuncio maybe writes a letter to the, I'm trying to think of the analogy. There's no parallel. There's down. no parallel because like Paul is but there, sui generis, right? I mean, there's, there's never, a, is there ever again a floating bishop in the manner of Paul? No. So the difference is, one of the main differences is that with the exception of Rome, which we're going to talk about Romans, but with the exception of Rome, uh, Paul did found most of those church yeah. communities. So he really so is. So he's not just he, sort of a floating bishop out there. He's a he figure actually, unto himself. There's never, there would never be another Paul. Who is intimately tied to that community. Yeah, Who right. has a connection to that. Paul is just a unique figure. He's a unique Because he, he has yeah. a spiritual authority because he evangelizes these communities. Yes, he is a unique figure. So if we think ecclesially and structurally, he is totally unique. But at the same time, it's it's a little bit dangerous to get too far afield that way because the way that Paul continually sees himself is as a pastor. Yeah. So whatever else can be said about him, of which there is much. Got it. He sees himself as a pastor of these people. Imagine that the priest who baptized you yes. kept, took, kept being in your life and then 30 years later wrote a pastoral letter to your family. Take it a step further. And Romans... Even though the, you have a different parish now, you live this somewhere This isn't else. the case with Romans, but take it a step further and that pastor who baptized you, who started your parish, actually, has yeah. now been imprisoned for his proclamation of the gospel. Yeah, right. And he writes a letter back to your parish. Yeah. There's a weight to that. There's a weight right? to that that's more. Which is significant. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So again, I, I say that- <laughs> Sorry all, for my torture. No, analogy. I think this is great because what we have to do is, what we must do is, is cease to let these letters be abstractions. Yeah. Because once they become cold theological treatises, they become something other than what they are. Yeah. Paul's not writing a theology manual, yeah. right? You know, he's he's not. He's not. He's writing a letter to congregations. So, so we have to be very careful about, in a particular way that we aren't with most of the other parts of the Bible, we need to be very careful about the conclusions we reach because we're only hearing one half of the conversation. And as I said, I think it's safe to say that most Many. I'll just say many because I'm not sure if it's most. But a, a whole ton of theological disputes and confusion and fights have come out of a misunderstanding of Paul. And if you think of most of the things that potentially tick people off about Christianity, about the church, you know, the church is anti-woman, the church is yeah. whatever. A lot of them come from Paul. In fact, there's a whole contingent of people, of contemporary sort of religious scholars of religion who say Paul distorted the message of Jesus. There, oh, are, yeah. pe there are people oh, who time. say big you time. have to distinguish between the message of Jesus and the message of Paul. Paul introduced misogyny into Christianity. Well, Paul many people will go Christianity, these kind of things. And many people will go so far as to say it's really Paul who founded what we know as Christianity. Right. Jesus just had sort of a ragtag group of guys. They sort of had, a, you know, this. And Paul took that and, and you turned it to his own device to make a religion. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and that is a very... Uh, widely held school of thought yeah. in, in one way or another. So that's a dangerous thing um, because if we can say nothing else other than Paul being a pastor, Paul is first and foremost, St. John Chrysostom talks about this, that first and foremost, before he's a pastor, before he's a theologian, before he is anything else, he is a man who is first and foremost um, knows himself to be loved by Jesus Christ. In fact, the letter of the Romans begins, Paul, a servant of yes. Christ Jesus. That's right. Not doulos, Paul, yeah. yeah, yeah. Not Paul, an apostle or no. Paul, a bishop right, or... Right. 
Yeah. Yeah. And he's the man who's thrown to the ground out of love of Jesus, who changes the course of his life. What does that mean? Oh, on the road to Damascus. On the road to Damascus. Yeah. What did I say? No, you said thrown to the ground. I just didn't know what I meant. I had to think about it. Oh, yeah. From, well, there's no horse except in a Caravaggio painting. Okay. I just trying to demythologize that too. I'm really ruining everybody's (laughs) imagery here. Um, I knew that because I, there, there used to be in my evangelical days, there was a, Song, Paul was walking on the road to Damascus. Did you know that song? No. I don't know the rest of the words. That's enough. Okay, Kate? (laughs) No, I was just going to come up with another lyric about how there was no horse. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, maybe there was, but there's no mention of a horse. Okay. Okay. So So, we don't have any any idea of the other side of this conversation, because you said the letters are a conversation back Ah, and forth. Do we have any of the other? So there's two ways we can err in in this sort of exploration, right? So you can err in the sense of... It's here. It's in my Bible. I bought it on Amazon. Like, I can know. I mean, this is kind of the, the American kind of Christian school of thought. This is what it says. This is what it means. You know, that's what it is. Like, Paul said this. I get it. The other end of that pendulum, which is wrong, wrong-headed, right? Um, the other end of that pendulum. <laughs> Scott said pendulum and then knocked over his microphone. Well, I was swinging. I was trying to demonstrate a pendulum. But the other end of that pendulum is trying to suggest. I'm done. And therefore, we can't know anything, right? Well, I don't, I don't know what's on the other side. Oh, so in I other guess, words, so people who would say, people who would try, try to view it, yeah. this outside of the context yeah. of a conversation, and right. then people who would say, since I only heard one end of the conversation, right. I can't glean anything from it. Yeah. Which if you've ever like listened to somebody in the room with you talking on the phone, you glean a ton from that conversation. You do. And you're like, and tell them this, and tell them this, <laughs> right? But you have to be careful. Yeah, right. You because you don't be know what they're careful. saying. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think we can very carefully do some detective work to figure out, okay, what is the other side of this? And What's happening what on the other end? With, with great humility right. and with great carefulness, because there's some things we just don't know. The the one that's a lot of fun to do this with um, is the letters, the correspondence to the Corinthians, in which Paul a number of times will quote other letters that he wrote oh, that we don't have, that yeah. we know nothing about. Like, well, we do know some things about him because he quotes them and he also quotes things that they wrote back to him. And so you have this whole reference to this conversation going on. You're like, okay, so we got to try to figure out maybe they said this and he said this. So, and I, I'd love to do Corinthians on we'll do a it. future podcast. But Okay. So the first thing you said about these letters is it's important to remember that Paul's a pastor. Yep. The next thing you said is it's important to remember that correspondence letters happen in the context of correspondence yep. back That's and right. forth, back and forth. That's right. So let's say the letter of Romans right now was written at some point in the first century of Christianity. And um, I think it's written in the mid sixties. All right, I and was I'll actually going to say sixty-seven. Um, I don't. I think it's pro- yeah uh, around there. I think. I think Biblical it's safe to say. Scholar? Bam, sixty-seven. Okay, so let's... I think it's pre-sixty-seven because Jerusalem would have been at war at that point, and there's no seeming mention oh, okay. of any of that. Okay, but I bet sixty-five, sixty-six. Darn, mm-hmm. I was going to call this the letter of the summer of love. Um, was it 1967? 69. Oh, 69. I think it was 1969. Okay, anyway. But that's fine. Um, it doesn't matter. Okay, so but, but this is my actually, question. So Paul... Oh, sorry. You want to say well, something about this? I, I just want to... Um, I want to highlight and uh, affirm your question because of all of Paul's letters, and again, we'll probably get more into this next week, of all of Paul's letters, this is the one whose context gets the shaft, I think, more than anything else. Okay. Because people don't pay attention to why, what is the circumstance? Most of the letters he says, I'm writing because you're a bunch of idiots. Yeah, or I'm writing yeah. because this thing happened or there's these false teachers and I'm trying to counter them. Most of the time he's explicit about his his reason for writing. Romans is a little more nuanced and you have to put the pieces together. Okay. But it's incredibly important that we understand the co- the context of it, which is not readily apparent. So I happen to know, this will be my first question, but it's a cool preview to my real question. I happen to know that the gospel of Mark was written to the church in Rome Correct. when St. Peter was in prison and Ma- Mark was his Scribe. I learned that on a little show I like to call Sunday School. Uh. Um, and uh, was that, does this precede that? Was that later? 
well, let's see if it's, I mean, chronologically, it'd be right around the same time. I bet Mark would be slightly after. Yeah. I'm okay. hesitating to say that because I don't know what scholars are going to argue with me. Okay. I My knee-jerk reaction, having not had this fresh on my mind, says it's slightly after because, again, this is when Peter is just about to be killed and martyred, which I believe was 67. I That's what I thought. when Peter was killed? That's what I thought. Okay, so this is my question. I think this is prior to that. How does this letter fit into the context of the Christian community? Is this correspondence between Paul and... I want to say the Bishop of Rome, but Paul and like... It's the, not the Bishop of Rome, it's the yeah. congregation. Okay, it's so written to it, the congregation, Peter like after Mass. offering Mass, and then he reads this aloud. Everyone, we got a letter from Paul, our yeah. friend Paul. Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of what's happening, right. and then people are kind of like pulling on their beards and talking about it, and kind of then uh, St. Peter or the priests or of whoever. Rome or someone might write a letter back. Like, how is this correspondence fitting into the life of the Christian community? It's being written, uh, yeah, so it's, well... Okay, now maybe this is a good time for the exercise. Okay. Because this is this is sort of how it works. Okay. So Paul, I don't oh, where's Paul when he writes? He's not in prison. I don't remember where Paul was. He it's not one of the prison letters. So he's somewhere free wandering around doing his thing. And you're gonna Rome, tell us next week where he was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, for sure. Notes, for sure. Just yeah. Rome is the one church, or there might have been multiple, but Rome was a church that he had not been to yet. Oh, so he hadn't so founded it. He had not. That's that's why I said this one's the exception to that. Oh, okay. They know who he is. But they know who he is because he's freaking Paul. He will be there This eventually. is like if you're a Presbyterian... Okay, this is like if you're a Presbyterian church or an evangelical church that's and you get a letter from Billy Graham. Yeah. This exactly is a letter right. from Billy that's Graham. That's exactly it. That's yes. exactly it. I needed an analogy and I've yes. got it. No, you're, you're, that's a good analogy. Okay. That's a really good analogy. So Billy Graham has not had a crusade in Rome... So to speak, <laughs> Billy Graham has not had a, a yet, yet a crusade in but Rome. A lot so of these speak. people have heard of but them. They've heard because he's Billy them. Graham. They know people. Yeah, many people in the congregation have probably met Paul because he says a bunch of his usual hellos, goodbyes mm-hmm. to people. At the end of the letters, he always says, "Hey, say hello to so and so, and say hello to this person." So he makes all the connections to prove that he knows yeah. these folks. Mm-hmm. Um, but what would have happened is Paul would have had a scribe, and in many of the letters, he actually names the scribe that's actually helping Was him Barnabas? write the letter. Uh, John Romans. Was and that might this might not actually have a scribe that's named. Guys, I want to tell you something because I think it'll help you to understand this show and understand something awesome about Scott. Uh-huh. We are recording this episode of the podcast in Scott's office, and we like set it up. And oh, Kate, I presume, got a babysitter because she has kids, and like I um, came here. Was it easier for me? Um, and Scott came down here. Scott lives like pretty far from his office. Yeah. And he worked really hard to prepare this episode and he left his notes on his kitchen table. So he is free falling this episode, free gliding this episode. And uh, so I feel bad that I put you on the spot because no, I bet good. you had that on in your notes. It's Tertius. 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 He's, oh, yeah. he's named in uh, chapter 16, verse 22. Pope St. Tertius the Great. I like And he actually writes. He says, I, Tertius, the writer he wasn't of this really letter, greet you in the Lord. <laughs> no, he was not. He was not. So Paul's somewhere, he is either dictating directly to a scribe or the scribe is kind of helping him write this letter uh, because he knows that the scribe, and here's the beauty of how these letters work. The scribe who helps Paul write these letters will be the one typically who will deliver the letter to the congregation. Really? So Tertius writes the letter, then he runs off to Rome. To Rome, to read it in front of the congregation. Oh, really? Who then have the opportunity to say, hey, Tertius, I didn't understand what Paul meant when he said that. So he's like, Peter oh, offers actually, Mass and he's like, and now we have Tertius to read a letter. Yes, and these exactly. guys are like, right. Peter's like, after Mass, he's like, please be seated. And everyone's like, oh. <laughs> My kids are really hungry. <laughs> please be seated. It's a we death knell. It. It's been like a three-hour liturgy <laughs> yeah, by that point because exactly. it's the ancient world. Yeah. I will not be seated. <laughs> so here's how this works. So I'm Scott. And I know you, and I'm in San Diego, 
and I have some things I want to communicate to you. Why like are you to... looking at each other like that? Just, well, follow, just, just roll I, with me. I'm trying to follow the game. I like to call okay. him Saul if that confuses <laughs> I'm just Scott. I, hi, Scott Powell. They're shaking hands. Yeah. So I'm Scott. I'm in San Diego. Okay. And I have some things I want to say to my friend JD, who's in Colorado. Okay. Right? Okay. Yeah. So I will conscript my good friend Kate, who is going to take this letter, and I want you to take this letter. I'm handing her a letter. I want you to deliver it to JD. Thank you. And now I want you to hand it back to Kate. So again, I'm ripping this off of another biblical podcast that I really like, that I heard them do this in front of a live audience. And okay. I just thought it was helpful okay. as far as like understanding So what's happened now works. is Scott has handed a folded piece of paper to Kate. Kate has handed the folded piece of paper to me, and I have handed the folded piece of paper back to Kate. Because I want Kate to read the letter to now you. Now Kate's going to read the letter to me. I'm my, so nervous about what the letter is As my deliverer say. who has the letter. You don't need to be stressed as out. As my deliverer. That's like no, so she's the, language. No, she's you remember the letter, but not your notes? <laughs> Yeah. Well, no, I wrote the letter this morning in oh, lieu of okay, my notes. Yeah. Because I didn't have my notes, I was like, I'll I'm do like this. I'm like super nervous about what this letter's okay. going to say. I assume it's going to be a second collection. Scott, to my beloved friend, JD. So far, so good. <laughs> I commend my coworker, Kate, to you. She is really, she is a really kind person whom I trust with this letter. Receive her as you would receive me. I'm finally getting back to you about our next podcast. Remember last season? Oh, we were really on fire. <laughs> I've been thinking about the Psalms and their structure and the discussion on evil we had. I'm still not sure what to do about babies and head crushing, but I trust the plans of, the, of divine providence for their inclusion in the narrative. I have Haggad, our discussion often. San Diego was beautiful and everyone there sends their greetings. Annie and Lily and Samuel and Evie. Evelyn left her stuffed dog, Tuffy, near the ecclesially decorated condo, of which we both know. <laughs> <laughs> That's a place that Scott and I know in you San Diego. Don't, don't, don't. Oh, sorry, sorry. Editorialize it yet? Oh, would you, <laughs> would you look for it the next time you travel there? He's wily, like John Picasso. Picasso. I, I can't, Picasso, sorry. I can't wait to, oh, how do you say this word? See, this is part of it. I'm not there. With you're, you, you're the, handler. the next time we are in Canada Ski-jour. together... I'd like to ski jour. Ski jour. Uh, perhaps there is a breakfast queen there. Jade and Chris send their greetings, as do everyone from the hat auction. <laughs> Can't wait to rock the next podcast season with you. This one about Romans will be even bigger than Clarissa. Shalom, my friend. Wow, there's a lot so. of there are a lot of inside references. I don't want to say inside jokes because that makes it sound like we're in middle school, but there are a lot of inside references that that refer to our friendship right. in that letter that I understand. Right. I presume this is what you're doing. That Kate probably didn't understand, and that our listeners don't so understand. So that's what I want to do first. Kate, do you have any questions about any of the things in there? Do you understand everything? Is it all crystal clear to you? Uh, I don't know who any of these people are who send their greetings. Ah. Um, Scott's family mostly, and then some of our friends. Yeah. And then I don't really understand why Breakfast Queen closed here. So it did? Did you guys? Yes. Are you kidding? I had breakfast at Breakfast Queen this morning. <laughs> no, I thought, I thought it closed. The one on... Um... Broadway by our old work. Are oh, you thinking breakfast. of the creepy place on Santa Fe? Yeah, the creepy place on Santa Fe. Wow, this is like that? a major existential <laughs> issue. Yeah, yeah right. This no, is, I had breakfast, the Breakfast Queen is that diner by our old work. Oh. Kate and I used to work together at a different place. Breakfast and on... Not breakfast on Broadway. It's next door to breakfast on Broadway. Oh, not the place on Santa Fe near the highway exit. The yeah, no, club. no, that's breakfast there is king. another breakfast place by breakfast on Broadway. It's right next door, actually. Okay. Super weird. Okay, yeah. I've never been. And there. I eat there often. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. This is how back biblical exegesis works. Actually. Oh, okay. It actually is because you're like, wait a second. There's this thing, but I heard that that closed, so that can't be what the author was referring to. But like, no, actually, this thing is. It's a silly example, but it actually is the kind of thing we're talking about. Yeah. Right? 
And all the references. Did you get all the references, JD? Yeah. Do you understand mm-hmm. what all this stuff meant? I do. I mean, I do. Yeah. So I, so Scott, for example, referenced Clarissa. Um, and that's because I, when we first had the idea of this podcast, I really wanted to call it Dr. Powell Explains It All. Right. Oh, because right. Scott yeah. and I are roughly 40 and people who are roughly 40 who live in this country remember a Nickelodeon television show called Clarissa Explains It All starring right. Melissa Joan Hart as herself. Actually, as Clarissa. That's Clarissa. Um, yeah. And, uh, and I thought that Dr. Powell Explains It All would be kind of like a good homage to Clarissa yeah. Explains It All. Uh, Scott thought it was fine, but he then he like surveyed a bunch of people. He claimed to have surveyed a bunch of people who didn't like it. So I think Dr. Powell <laughs> yeah. Explains It All would have been a good name for this show. But anyway, that was the reference to Clarissa. This then the point. Yeah. you um, talked about the ecclesially decorated condo in San Diego because yeah. I one time uh, gave a talk. You go on vacation to San Diego every year because you have a friend who lets you stay yeah. at their house. Yeah. I gave a talk in San Diego about a year ago and stayed very close to the place where you stay, but I stayed in a condo that's kind of owned by this like church group and it looked, it was decorated, when I say decorated ecclesially, I don't mean it was like in the Baroque style. I mean, it had a lot of kind of like, it looked like a Paris Hall in there. It had a lot of kind of like old Parishy Hall kind of stuff. So, uh, and I was telling you about it and, uh, and then, and then, and then when you were in it. San Diego last week, you texted me a picture of the outside of the ecclesially decorated condo. Cause you knew what it was. So it's like something that and in my defense, I pe- texted you a picture of a guess of, of a building what you thought in it was. the town where it was. And I happened to be and you were exactly right. You right. got it. You, you got it. Like you just, he, it was very cool. Yeah. yeah. And cool. that was like a thing for us. Cause we're friends. So that was a reference. And why would I put all of these references in a letter to you? I would definitely know it was from you. If I saw that, I would definitely know it was from you. So number oh. one, you definitely know it's from me, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Which is, which is important. It's not a, a, you know, somebody claiming to be me because presumably you don't necessarily know Kate. Right. In, in this context, in this little game. Right. Um, the other thing is that, so yeah, on, on one level you do it because I want to make sure that you know this is actually me. But on another level, I'm writing it because you're my friend and we share some stuff and it's kind of fun yeah. to make funny references. Mm-hmm. And I don't have any necessarily inclination that this is going to be included in the canon of sacred scripture for all of time and all people for all of history. Because divine revelation of scripture does not work like the Holy Spirit takes over St. Paul and vis-a-vis his his, his scribe Tertius, he says things in a kind of a trance and Tertius writes them down and that's the Bible. Divine revelation is is, is manifested in the fully human act of... Writing yeah. and even I—I I mean, it's a super mystery to me how this works. But like, how divine revelation works through the oral tradition, which precedes the written down scripture of the yeah. Old Testament, is like a super cool thing to think about. Yeah. And in this case, like, the Holy Spirit is working through Saint Paul to give us something which we know is revealed by God and inerrant, and yeah. among the sources of revelation. Um, and yet. For Paul, maybe he prayed before he wrote it, but he's just writing a letter. He's writing a letter. Yeah, exactly. I want to write you a letter. Okay. And that's that. and there's something very beautiful about that because yeah. I've had students in the past when I taught when I teach Paul saying, Why like if there's there's so much important theology in these letters. Yeah. And it just seems a very inefficient on the part of the Holy Spirit to give us all of our theology and our doc- doctrine this way. Why don't you just write a text? Like, give me a textbook. Give me, here's what I need to know. Why did he do it this way? And, and ultimately, I don't know why the Holy Spirit chose to give us the sacred scriptures this way. I do. Okay. Would do. I mean, I have some guesses. <laughs> Far I have be some it for thoughts. Me to but I do, I do think the mode of the transmission of scripture, which is both inspired by the Holy Spirit and 
written by human beings is an expression, like scripture is incarnational. Yes, yes. Because... That, that's exactly what I was going to say. Oh, cool. I'm so glad. The, like, the, the, Not just scripture. The faith is incarnational. The faith is incarnational. That's why and this the church, is a good way to transmit yeah, the faith. And the church is both human and yes, divine right. because Christ is human and divine. Yeah. And right. so like our lives together as Christians are this thing which is like we're bound in the supernatural way of our baptism and we become part of the mystical body of Christ. But that's not divorced from our human bonds with one another. Right. In fact, they're tied up together in a, be- in a really beautiful way. Right. And that's really important, I think, because again, our faith is not given to us in a textbook dropped from Yeah. Heaven, and the early church especially is like not that many Christians. Like, yes. and if you think about like, yeah. the, you know, podcast listeners, like the people in your town who practice the faith, even if they don't get, you kind of like, there, there becomes yeah. this sort of culture of people who practice yeah. the faith who you know. And the early church is all that. It's all that. Yeah. yeah totally. Which is important. Except it's like every other person you're like, oh, they got murdered martyred last week. So it's like a little bit yeah. more intense, you know, but um, but that same, I, I've said this before. I don't know if I've said this on this show or not, but I think it's so important for us as Christians to realize, sorry, I'm on a soapbox now, but I think it's so important for us as Christians to realize like we have much more, we have kinship and cultural commonality and practical commonality far more with people who practice the faith around the world than with people who don't practice faith because we're incorporated into right. a real human community. And and part of a big part of evangelization is to invite people into a way of living together, yeah. a hodos, if you will, yes. a way of being. Yes, that's right. Um, hodos is a word that I learned from this show. A way but, of being. But what's important about the word hodos? It means the way. Yeah, what else is important about it? It was the Christian's first identifier for themselves. Right, yeah, it was the Christian's like, first it's identifier. Not an idea. Like, right. this is who, before they were Christians, yeah. they were hodos. Yeah, they were. We are the, the way. Right, exactly. And we invite people into that. Yeah. But it's not just like ascent to this faith and then be on your own. Right. It's like, you are invited into this human community. Right. And that is our our identity. Yeah. And so this is, so I started this. That's again, why this we're is, a people. That's why we're a people. Like, um, yeah, if the right. church is the new Israel, Israel is a people. Mm-hmm. And there's a kinship that is part of being a part of Israel. Right. And right. we should... We it should be good. We should know that it is good that we are that the church is a people yes. in the same way, and that people transcends like ethnic or is meant to transcend ethnic bounds and national bounds right. and cultural bounds. But like we should know that a person who is baptized into the faith with us is meant to have this natural human connection between churches mediated through the church and and being the church, um, uh, no matter where they live in the world. Right, and so we can look back two thousand years later. And say, oh, the Holy Spirit used all of that, yeah. all of those things to actually bring about the faith or to, to demonstrate or, or preserve or pass on the faith through conversations of people who had no idea that their words were going to be immortalized you right. know, in the sacred scripture because they're just saying, hey, say hi to so-and-so. Yeah. Oh, but like you said, that so-and-so next week is going to be martyred. Yeah. And that's actually really important yeah. because if this was the first century, this letter, half of those names that you read probably would have been martyred by now. Yeah. Which again, that takes it out of like, oh, this is just somebody I well, know. Well, it's like I, you know, we, we have this great Nigerian correspondent at the pillar, Father Justine. And Father Justine is a priest of a diocese where, like, many of the priests of his diocese have been kidnapped and several of them have been martyred. Yeah. And for them, it's not like a martyr is this guy on the wall who had this holy life and has a halo behind his right. It's like a martyr was Steve in all his complexity. Right. You know what I right. mean? And that's real. Yes, that's exactly right. So, and I think this scripture gives us that. And it's – but – 
the problem is so many of us don't read it that way. Yeah. We want it to be a treatise, right? We right. want it to be a theological document, and it's not. It's that. So I wanted to start there, and maybe this has been too long of an intro, but I wanted to start there because I think that's really important. And if we miss that, we're not going to get Romans. And maybe we can pull out some interesting Christology out of it, but we're not going to get what Paul's actually doing. Okay, so we have so, about 20 minutes left in this show, so let's do two so, things. Talk about Paul, and then tell us what we're going to study for the rest of this semester. Okay, so here's what we need to know about Paul. I want to say a word. Uh, actually, before we get that, I want to say something Peter says. Because okay. Peter, as a, a pastor... Pope St. Peter the Great, first bishop of Rome. Pope St. Peter the Great. Do you know what Peter says about Paul? About his letters? He says something specifically about his letters, which I find Please be wonderful. seated. So it's... No. So I'm going to read a passage from Second Peter chapter 3, okay. which was presumably, we're not 100% sure, presumably written to the congregation in Rome, okay. of where Peter was pastor, right? It says, so also, so I'm in 2 Peter 3, I'm in verse middle of verse 15. Like what page? <laughs> 17. Second Peter 3, Chapter 15. Three. Uh, yeah, verse 15. So also our beloved brother Paul wrote to you, presumably you Romans, presumably this letter that we're talking about, according to the wisdom which was given to him, speaking of this as he does in all of his letters. So it's one of the first places the church identifies Paul's letters as letters, as epistles that will be canonized. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction, just as they do the other scriptures. And I love that that point because, again, looking back at the history of the church, the history of Christianity, Romans has been used and misused and understood and misunderstood and twisted and manipulated for so long, and Peter sees it coming. He's like, look, and Peter's the simple fisherman, right? Who's like, man, this Paul guy, he's really hard to understand. I, the first pope, admit Paul's hard to understand. And presumably he's talking about the letter to the Romans. It's hard to understand. And I bet people are going to try to twist this and misuse it and manipulate it. So watch out. Wow. And I just love that as kind of a <laughs> yeah. heads up, everybody. Yeah. I love that. It's important. Totally. Okay. One quick word about Paul um, and then a word about the Roman Empire. And then here's where we're going. Um because you can't understand Paul devoid of the Roman Empire. Bum, so we'll say bum, 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 bum. Paul, we meet for the first time. Do you, anyone know when we meet Paul for the first Saul for the first time? Saul, Paul. Acts. Yes. Do you remember what event? And I know we're Catholic, so we won't know the chapter or verse, but you're, you were a Protestant at one point. I was. But do you know the event that actually introduces us to Paul? Because I bet you do, and you're just forgetting. Uh, Acts. What, it was, was he an off? Oh. Just do it. Just oh, go. Just was go he an officer? Like nope. a no, no, no. Sorry, <laughs> well, sorry, sorry. Well, like he was overseeing something. Okay. The stoning of Saint Stephen. Yes. The okay. church's first martyrdom. The first oh. martyrdom. Saint Stephen. Yep. A diaconate of a de yep. deacon of the church. Yep. And Saul, it continues to continually says was overseeing this. He mm -hmm. was consenting to it. Over so, officer in a certain sense, he was authoritative yeah, the, over this. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the first <laughs> officer Saul. They call him officer Paul. <laughs> Depending, oh, on the, depending on where you live. Oh, me, oh, my. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> no, that's good. So he oversees, I, I suppose you could say, uh, the stoning of Stephen, the first martyrdom of the church. And if you remember, this I think is interesting. And the reason I start here, um, Stephen, right before his martyrdom, gives a long speech. Yep, Acts chapter 7. Exactly, which he gives the kerygma, mm -hmm. which I wonder if it's one of the, and maybe this is why oh, the Holy Spirit he includes sowed seeds. It. He sowed seeds. You can find, if it's not putting too on, much of a stretch, you can find this kind of kerygma throughout Paul's letters. 
that the kerygma of Stephen. Oh, really? Is, That's amazing. It's, it rhymes in a certain sense, and I, I don't, you know, I mean, it's the kerygma is the kerygma, but I just wonder if the this kerygma is a basic something. proclamation of the gospel yeah, message, sorry. right? No, totally. Yeah. But, but I just the wonder kerygma if this is a basic proclamation something. of the gospel message, and Paul, Saul, hears it. Yeah. Since Stephen Stone died, will not make the awful pun of saying it fell on rocky soil. Oh, geez, but um, but he hears it, and nevertheless, perhaps yeah. it does take root in his heart. I wonder about that because yeah. again, it's it's given in its entirety. Doesn't this guy? Kind of isn't this guy like always saying this stuff? Yeah, yeah. all this stuff, incredible stuff. So then, what does Saul do next? Do you guys remember? Walks to Damascus. Ah, good. So before that, he goes to the high oh, priest. Oh, he saw ravages the church, according to yeah, the subheading chapter. And I think Stephen is within the context of his continuous ravaging of the church. What does that mean? He's, he's, well, okay. Oh, oh. Saul was entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing yeah. them to prison. That's what it he means. Was raiding, he was raiding the buildings and, and, and imprisoning Christians. Yeah, and I used to sort of see Saul as sort of this terrorist or this really bad guy. I th- And I'm not sympathetic to it. Exactly. But I think trying to understand Saul better, Saul sees himself as like an Elijah who's like putting to death the priests of Baal. Saul sees himself as a historic Old Testament figure who has been called upon by God to root out the apostasy in God's people. Okay. One interesting thing. I just always thought of him as sort of bloodthirsty and violent. Yeah, which he where, is. but Absolutely he sees himself he as wanting Israel, as and you put the context for me of the gospel era of like yeah. wanting Israel to be pure for the sake yeah, of the return of right. the Messiah, and wanting Israel like yeah. the Pharisees genuinely wanting to observe God's law for yep. for the Haggah to return to the temple, the presence of God, Shekinah, the Shekinah yeah, yeah. of the presence of God to yeah. return to the temple, and Paul probably wanted that too, perhaps earnestly. Absolutely. But one yeah, interesting thing, you tell me if I'm like totally off the wall here, but Paul goes from. Wanting the state to to effectively persecute heresy, to or, or no? I mean, isn't that if he's dragging off no heretics to prison? Here's the thing about Saul, and again, this is a little more complicated. Okay, um, in the Gospels, what we find out is that people like Saul, who is a Pharisee, mm-hmm. maybe part of the Sanhedrin. Do you remember the whole problem of the Gospels is that the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees did not have the authority to put anybody to death. Right. They had to have Rome do it. Right. So what the heck is Saul doing? Saul's not part of the state. He's yeah. a Pharisee. There was a temporary, we think, gap in power. There's a power vacuum between Herods. And I think he's grabbing at this opportunity for the people of God, the religious community, to step in where the state has no authority and do exactly what was not legal in a sitting. Oh, but not turning over those camp. early Christians to Rome in the same way that Jesus. No, just he's just over. he's saying this is us. This is claiming a right, us. claiming a divine sort of divine Again, right. He's of Elijah. Elijah is the greatest example because Elijah goes against the evil pagan king and says, "No, it's our authority. Yahweh alone has the authority to do this." So Saul's not turning anything over to the state. He's saying, "We and we alone have the authority to put these people to death, and we must because of who they are." Does that make sense? It does. So it, you're right in a certain sense, but they're they're not the state. They're clearly not in power. They're not the state. And so they've taken upon, Saul has taken upon himself authority that wouldn't even legally be his. But we think there might be a power vacuum between Herods, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Okay. So he receives these letters from the, the high priest, basically letters, interesting, right? To go, because you need letters to gain credi- credibility to give a message or proclamation of some kind to a synagogue community, right? So he goes to the high priest. Faculties. Yeah, basically. He gets a pagella. He gets... Do you know what uh, his faculties are for, though? Preaching. Nope. Persecuting? Killing them. Killing them. He's like, I need letters from the high priest to go to these synagogues. But he needs a religious faculty to perform this thing. To go drag them out, the women, children, and men, and put them to death 
as the Elijah he thinks he is, right? That's what And the high doing. priest gives him the faculty? He absolutely does. I mean, he appears to, because then he makes his way to Damascus. And I just want to say a word about Damascus, because we all know the story, right? He's thrown to the ground on the road to okay, Damascus. Okay, but everybody first not. think about the irony of Paul requesting faculties, having to go through the safe environment training so that he can persecute <laughs> 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 Oh, my God. <laughs> oh my God, this is going to slow everything down. <laughs> paperwork, so much paperwork. <laughs> He's just sitting there in the virtues meeting thinking, I got to get out there and persecute. Does anybody know why he goes to Damascus? Actually, let me, so not, chapter nine, Acts chapter nine says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. By the way, notice it says synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found anyone belonging to the way, the hodos, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem, bring them back to, to the Vatican, ba- back to the holy city and put them to death. Now, why Damascus? Do you guys have any idea? I recently kind of have begun to dig into this and I find it absolutely fascinating. Where do the majority of the Jews in the time of Paul live? Syria? You just give your knee-jerk reaction. Where did Jews live? Israel. Iran and Iraq. Oh. Oh. At the time of Jesus. In the time of Jesus and Paul, right? Mm-hmm. So if you remember, I think we talked about this in our previous podcast. So there's a lot, obviously lots of Jews in Jerusalem. Oh, because of the captivity. Yes. Oh, some Jews came back from the Babylonian captivity, but and a lot of Jews didn't did come not. back. So there are two sort of centers of Jewish population and thought. There's the Jerusalem center. Yeah. And there is the former Babylon, currently Persian center, right? Iran, Iran, Iraq. Yeah. So there's a huge population out there. There's a huge population in Jerusalem and Judea. Uh-huh. Smack in the middle is Damascus. Oh, Damascus okay. is the in-between. It's the doorway okay. of one to the other, right? And so, and, and notice that there are multiple synagogues in Damascus because it's really important. Oh, so it's a place where... Eastern Judaism with sure. a kind of Eastern flavor sure. and Israel Judaism sure. with a kind of Israel flavor sort of meat. Kind of meat. Okay. And it's the key to trade because they trade with each other because okay. you'd want to trade with your fellow Jew, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's economically important. It's culturally important. Okay. It's geographically important. And I think Saul is thinking to himself, man. I better if, stop Christianity before it takes root. If they get to Damascus, yeah. then they're gonna, then it's going to explode and it's going to evangelize the whole world. Okay. If it gets there out that front door, then this infection is going to become a pandemic. So he's like, I have to get to Damascus because if they're infected, then it's going to ruin everything. Yeah. Which is ironic, of course, because what he's trying to do is stop the spread of the gospel and of the way to the rest of the Mediterranean world. But that's super interesting because then wouldn't you think if that were true, which I think it is, Paul would just stay in Damascus to preach Christianity after he became... Oh. For a long time until they get rid of him. Remember, they kick him out. They're like, Paul, you're too hot to handle. Like, you I got, did you not gotta remember go. that. Kate, did you remember that? I did not remember yeah. that. Yeah, no, he's got to go. They, they kick I him think, out. I think he was only headed there that one time. <laughs> right, me too. Well, <laughs> he was, and then and then they take him in. Then he fell off the horse. Yeah. yeah, he's blinded. Uh-huh. And I think it's Ananias, right? Uh-huh. Who talk about a person with guts in the church, by the way, knows exactly who Saul is, knows exactly that he's come to put them to death. And the Holy Spirit says, hey, go find this guy, Saul, who is going to kill you, and I want you to get him and bring him in and care for him. Yeah. And Ananias is like, okay. Assuming, presumably, that this guy's going to kill me. I'm going to care for him. I'm going to do what the Lord asks, and I will be a murderer. And that's just how it's going to work. But there's there's some profound courage there. And so he's housed there in Damascus for a while, but then they have to get rid of him and he goes somewhere else. And then he'll spend about 10 years basically praying and thinking and reflecting before he gets back on mission and starts See, that's the letters. part. I think Paul's novitiate, so to speak, 
Paul's hermeneutics period is yeah. so important for uh, for Christians today to think yeah. about. Not that like yeah. we shouldn't yes. preach the gospel no, until we have. No, I'm not saying we shouldn't preach the gospel until we spend ten years as a hermit. But I do think like um, prayer precedes apostolic activity. Fruitful apostolic activity is preceded by prayer. Absolutely, and not just like a, dear Lord help us make a good podcast today, That's but like a lot, an, a, a rich interior life. Yeah, absolutely right. Paul, you don't spend ten years, I don't think, in in studying prayer without becoming a mystic. So I think it's probably plausible to say that in Paul the missionary, yeah, in a hermitage effectively, yeah. that Paul the missionary was is first Paul the mystic. Uh-huh. And That's again, nice. I'm not saying we should like um, not think that we should do evangelical activity. There's until something we... to take in a breath and saying, right. hold on, let me maybe pray on this and think about what I'm called to say. And, and moreover, if I'm ha- living any kind of Christian life, I have to have a real actual, I can't like skip over the part where I have a prayer life. Yes. Yeah, I have to, right. even if that means I have to go to my confessor and say like, I don't know how to pray even a little bit. Yeah. And I think that's like a lot of people yeah. are afraid to do that, to say like, I oh, don't know how absolutely. to pray. Totally. Um, but I, but like it takes some humility to say like, oh, I practice the faith and I don't know how to pray. But I think it's probably true for a lot of people. I know there have been points where it's true for me. And Paul like is a good reminder, like yeah. if we want to have a fruitful Christian life, of course it has to start with an interior life. Do you know where he goes? So he spends some time in Damascus. He goes some, to, back to Tarsus for a little while. And then do you know where he spends the majority of this sort of novitiate time? Do you guys remember? It's really important, but again, if you don't sort of have the eyes of the Jew, you might miss it. So it says he goes to Arabia. I think this is not in Acts. I think it's in Galatians. But he goes to Arabia for a long, long time. And I think the reason he goes there, I think Saul's going back to to Sinai. Where is Sinai? Nobody knows for sure. Oh, okay. There, there's a vast scholarly debate, which... Um, but it would have been correlated with Arabia in the time of Saul. Yes, I think that much is safe to say, mm-hmm. because I think what Saul is doing is saying, I need to go back to the beginning. I need mm-hmm. to go back to the foundations of this whole thing and re-understand. So he goes back to the place where God initially gave his law. Where did God give his word? Okay, I'm going back there, and I'm just going to sit there and stay there. And there's something really beautiful about even just mentally when we come to crises in our faith of going back yeah. to foundational moments, whether yeah. it's right. mentally yeah, or, or physically. I'm going to go back to that place where things made sense. Yeah. And I'm going to start again there. And then, Kate, do you remember that time when Paul was in Arabia and he found that scarab and it made the Cave of Wonders? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was, pretty... that. that was pretty cool. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well done. So that, I, I just want us to know Paul a little bit before yeah, I think we that's... go in here. He is – Paul is a man who lived in three worlds, which are really important to just kind of keep in the back of our heads through this whole thing. He Rome. Was... Rome. Israel. Israel. And the other one's obvious, although it didn't come about until a little bit later. Christianity. Christianity. Oh. Christianity. Right? Yes. Yeah, no, I was, uh... yeah. But but those three interact with each other in really important ways because it wasn't this clean break why well, I was a Jew and now I'm yeah. a follower of Jesus. You know, he's still a Roman citizen. Well, the point about Saul Paul yes. it sort of makes that. Like I, I thought that, so. that was yeah. I didn't think that was code switching. I thought that was just no a Christian who... name change. Yeah, that, absolutely right. Yeah, and I, I want to be known to these people, and so I'm going to pronounce my name differently for Pete's sake. Um, oh, by the way, before we leave the whole Saul thing, just the the and I was just thinking about this this morning, and I'm sure I a million other people have said this already, but I just hadn't seen it. Not on this show. What is Saul doing? Saul is going out into the desert to chase down God's anointed people, right? To try to put them to death. Who's he named after? King Saul. Who did what? Chase down David. God's anointed in the wilderness to try to put him to death. Which is just, I just hadn't thought about that until Uh today. And I was like, that's kind of cool. And then God flips the whole thing upside down. Yeah. So he he lives as a Roman citizen, which is yeah. a big deal. Rome is a big deal, and and, and really, why was he a Roman citizen? Probably because his parents were. It's something that was bestowed upon you. 
um, probably from parental lineage. So somehow they were important enough within the Roman Empire that he had that title, which gave you a bunch of things. It gave you tax breaks. It meant you couldn't be um, couldn't be executed outside of the city of Rome, or you had the right, you know, you had the right to certain things, um, which was a big deal. It was a big deal. It's not like I happen to live in this place and I got a green card. It's it's citizenship meant something different, which is going to be very important for the way that Paul sort of speaks about the kingdom in his letters, because knowing what citizenship actually meant for a person like Paul is going to come to bear big time on what citizenship, the citizenship he speaks about in the kingdom of God is actually going to look like. Um, one, I, I want to be careful with our time because there's two last things I want to say. One just as a setup for next week, but another one just because I think it's important that we know this. Can I just say a word about Caesar Augustus? Yep. Because yeah. again, it's it's impossible to think about this world outside of that. In the same way, again, we're speaking about letters and contexts and the other end of the stories, other sides of conversations. Can you imagine, I say this to my seminarians sometimes. Can you imagine if a thousand years from now, you're reading some text on what it meant to be a seminarian in the Catholic Church in the United States of America in 2023, and you had no idea who the Pope was, you had no idea what the political space in the United States was, you knew none of that. How could you ever possibly understand the experience of being a seminarian in the United States of America in this year? Yeah. If you didn't know all the stuff that that brought with it, you would you would miss tremendous amounts. And that's the same thing for reading Paul's letters. If we don't actually know, like, how can you read the front page of a New York Times a thousand years from now and not know who Donald Trump is, right? To, to know, not know any of the categories or the names, it would be nonsensical. Or, or at least you'd miss a lot. Can we, can we at least say yeah. that's safe? Yeah. So... Um, Caesar Augustus, just a word about him. Caesar Augustus, famously, his name is Octavian. He was the adoptive yeah. son of a guy named Julius Caesar, of whom the Shakespearean play is written about. And Julius Caesar was the the, the emperor of Rome. He he sort of was reigning in the time of a big civil war that was brewing in the Roman Empire, right? He was famously put to death. He was assassinated by what, Cassius and Brutus, right? Et tu, Brute, in the Shakespearean novel. Um, he's put to death, and his adoptive son, Octavian, who is, I believe, about 17, uh, inherits everything. And he was put to death. If you remember the story, he was assassinated because his compatriots thought that he was getting too much power and too much influence and he would become a dictator. And that was scary. So they had to stop it. And so as soon as he is assassinated, basically as soon as that, Octavian, who is later going to be renamed Augustus, he will take on the reign or the, the mantle of Caesar with all of the resources and money and wealth and armies and power of his father. And he will use almost all of it to basically destroy all of his father's enemies. So he'll bring all of the influence that he has to bear on destroying everybody, which is effectively what becomes the Pax Romana, right? The peace of Rome, which is I'm going to use every bit of influence and resource to kill anybody who looks at me wrong, right? Which he does very effectively. And in the process, he's also an incredible administrator, and he consolidates the entire empire in a way that had never been consolidated before, makes it incredibly powerful, incredibly wealthy. And in the process, there's two things he does. He establishes a huge, I think, probably the world's biggest system to that time of roads and ports. So we always hear about the Roman roads, right? People forget about the Roman ports, which were almost as numerous as the roads, thousands of miles worth of roads. But what he did was he put the roads and the ports under the control of the Roman military. Because the idea was if they're in control, then if there's an uprising or a disturbance anywhere, they can get there immediately through the ports or through the roads because they always can conscript whatever they want to. And shut them down. And shut, shut down, and shut it down, uh, exactly. Yeah, and are. really efficiently and really effectively. But what it also did was simultaneously create trade routes and trade opportunities that they'd never have before. Yeah. So in silencing any disturbance, in creating essential, you know, 
safety from enemies because they were so powerful, he created the greatest economic prosperity that any empire had ever seen. Cities are growing like never before, which obviously is going to create the environment. All of a sudden now there's a system of roads where the gospel can go. Yeah. All of a sudden there are bustling cities where Paul can go and preach and to. And Christianity is essentially an urban religion. We've talked about that It before. is absolutely an urban religion right. at, at this point. Yeah. yeah. So it's going to be, you know, part, which is why you can't separate these realities from the way the church yeah. is growing. Yeah. The other thing that Caesar didn't have, though, so economics were great, military was great, roads were great, infrastructure was great, you know, national organization was great. But the one thing that was dying was religion. Yeah, and because the Roman sense. gods are a really crappy version of the Greek gods. Exactly and right. So there's, and nobody there cared is, about them. Yeah, nobody cared about them or really believed in them seriously. Right. So there is a there is um, a burgeoning uh, – it's a historical period of like burgeoning wealth and comfort for many people. Yep. Yeah, relatively yeah, speaking, yeah, yeah, I mean, relatively yeah, speaking. any person listening to this podcast is a million times richer than any Roman. But, um, um, but at the same time, a kind of crisis of meaning or a kind of ennui about meaning itself. And there was a lot of curiosity. So the religions yeah. of the East were gaining popularity. It's also, I think, why Rome was so threatened by Christianity, mm-hmm. because it was seen as a religion of the East, which they just didn't didn't like and, you know, it was infiltrating. So Caesar Augustus said, well, this we, we have to give a resurgence to the Roman gods. We need to rebuild this. And so within Rome alone, he built like 40 new temples. He bankrolled the Roman priesthood. Did you know that? That he Mm single-handedly like basically paid people to become priests, Roman priests. Um, Put tons of money into this, put tons of stuff. And the kind of icing on the cake was that he went before the Roman Senate and he basically said, look, I think is sort of the capstone to this whole project of the resurgence, this renaissance in in, uh, Roman religion. We need to declare my father, Julius, the great Julius Caesar, we need to declare him a god because he needs to be added to the pantheon. And we're told that the Roman senators were like, that's a dumb idea. (laughs) We want to get back to Rhodes. Like there's, we have more important things to worry about than your stupid religion. And, but they're like, well, if we say no, it's going to seem like we hate Julius, poor Julius got assassinated and like, you know, and you don't really want to get on the bad side of Augustus. So fine. Great. Yeah. We'll declare him a God. Nobody really cares about these gods anyway. And then of course, immediately after he had a plan for this and he was like, Great. Now I am Divus Filius. You have declared me legally, democratically, yeah. the son of God. Yeah. So I am a deity. And he started establishing temples to himself all over the empire, to his dad, of course. But then there'd always be an altar to the son of God, yeah. Octavius, right? Yeah. This is the context in which the gospels are actually being presented. There's a scene in the gospels where Matthew, or Jesus, it's in the gospel of Matthew, which is in the, all three synoptics, where Jesus takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, which was an old city that was recast in honor of Caesar, right? Caesar's Philippi, where there used to be this old defunct pagan temple, which one of the Herods, I think it was Herod the Great, recast as a temple, basically renovated and remade it, renamed it into a temple to Julius Caesar and his son, mm-hmm. Octavian. Which is not on the way to anything. It's not a suburb of anything. It's yeah. out in, because he didn't want the Jews to notice that he was doing this. Yeah. So Jesus takes his apostles out there in the middle of nowhere, this temple built hewn into a rock. And that's where he famously says, who do people say the son of man is? And they're like, well, some people say you're Elijah and some people say you're a prophet, blah, blah, blah. And he says, who do you say that I am? And it's only Peter, right? Who is still named Simon at that point, who says what? You are the son of God. You are the Christos. Mm-hmm. There's a nuance to this that that we miss if we don't know the culture. You are the Christos. Christ, of course, the title of Christ is reserved for one man and one man alone. The anointed. The Messiah. Caesar Augustus. Oh, Caesar Augustus is the Christos? Yeah. It just means the anointed one, the king. Mm -hmm. And he made it elite. Anybody else dares to call themselves a Christos? He's going to put him to death immediately because that's treason. 
he and he alone is the Christos, right? The Jews were hoping for a figure who would come and but save they, them. But Christos wasn't figuring into that. Like, yeah, well, no. you just weren't allowed to say it. Yeah. You couldn't say something like that. So Peter saying that automatically would have gotten him put to death. So Especially it's a in Caesarea Philippi. Well, but that's not all he says. He yeah. says, you are the Christ, the what? You missed a nuance. And you both answered it, but you missed one word. Anoint, no. Son you of God. the Christ, the son of the Father. Father. Living God, God, which sounds oh, we, we're so no, good. No, no, you're good. Yeah, Is you the answer there. Jesus? No. <laughs> well, yes, Pope Saint Jesus. <laughs> yeah, no, it was good. Did you, did you catch the new son of though? the living God? Yeah, he calls Why himself that important because because his father is dead because they're standing uh, literally yeah, in the shadow, shadow of a temple of built, built for to a, the son of a dead God. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. which again for maybe it's just a throwaway no, line, but for awesome. Peter to not realize what he's saying. Yeah, because there's sure. only one thing in Caesarea Philippi, and it's a giant temple yeah. built in honor of the son of a dead God. Yes, right. and in response, Jesus says to Peter or to Simon rather, "Blessed are you, Simon Bar Jonah." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this, blah, blah, blah. And then he says the big declaration. And you are Peter, and upon this rock I shall build my church. And, and what are they standing in the shadow of? The big rock upon. A giant right. rock yeah. that has hewn into it a temple built to the son of a dead god. You so know, the I whole scene is recast. that I learned about that in the Gospel of Mark podcast. Oh, did we talk exactly. about that? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, but we're putting it in a different context. We're putting it in a different context yeah. because Paul's whole um, project, in a certain sense, is undermining the Roman narrative. Because the narrative suggests that this Augustus is now the savior of the world. He is the son of God. He is the, his birth was the Evangelion. It was the gospel message. He was the savior of the world. He brings in the peace. He's the prince of peace. He's the prince of righteousness. The entire narrative is being undermined by the gospels and by Paul. Okay, can but I— s- To not know the macro narrative is to miss all of what Paul is doing. And can I say something about that? That points to something which I think is often missed in the— Perception of Paul that perhaps people, maybe only I have, but Paul... It's a lot of alliteration. Yeah. And a perception, perception of Paul, Paul that, that people perhaps... Yeah, yeah. A perception <laughs> of Paul that perhaps perhaps only I possess. Um, <laughs> but like Paul, the kind of evangelist, but not like the temerity of Paul to like be so brazen and brash yeah. in that articulation of the gospel, that there's a kind of um, such a direct repudiation of the prevailing cultural And where does and Paul power. spend most of the letters? Prison. In prison. Right? Again, this is not an accident. It's not but like, it's, oh, it's, you love Jesus. He's doing it yeah, because it's not he's like, undermining oh, you love Jesus the empire. Gonna, it's like, wow, these guys, the, 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 yeah, the temerity of that. And is, why is he not just put to death for that? Because he's a Roman citizen. Because he's a Roman citizen. Mm-hmm. So again, all of these things are really important and he's going to leverage those rights that as much as he can. That holy brazenness, that brashness, yes. that kind of like, I don't even care what yes. you think. Yeah. It reminds me kind of like, I if you're a, if you hang out in the extended pillar universe, it kind of reminds me of a characteristic. Are we I, the extended yeah, pillar we're the universe? extended okay, the pillar. Extended just universe. Want to make sure. But if you're a pillar listener to this show and the pillar podcast and everything, my so we're the crown molding. On yeah, the pillar? like um, if you listen to the pillar podcast, the character of Ed, played by my uh, podcasting partner Ed Condon, has this kind of like this characteristic of kind of temerity that I think is yeah. sort of that same way. Like I don't care what you think, this is what's true. Bam, they're you know probably I mean? not too different from each other. Jeez, in, that's... in some ways, right? <laughs> He's going to get such a big head when he hears that. Well, Paul had a pretty big head, if you remember. <laughs> that's He's true. He's pulling out his resume at every stop yeah, that's right. to show yeah, what a great true. Jew he was. That's true. Because, again, I, and it's not purely out of big-headedness. He saw himself as Elijah, and he's like, yeah. this is a, in direct continuity with who I know I am already called to be. Do you think Paul grappled with his hubris? Like, do, do you think he can—I mean, it was somewhat anachronistic to say this. Yes. But do you think he confessed it, so to speak? Oh, 
Uh, yes, because of the letter of Second Corinthians. Mm. I think that's the one. That's where the it, thorn in the side. No. Okay, because everybody thinks that. I don't think that's the thorn in the side. No. I don't know what the thorn in the side is. But the Second Corinthians is the one that Paul grapples with his own identity mm. and why his life is horrible and why everything bad happens to him, which is being used by the Corinthians as an accusation as to why he's not a legitimate apostle. Uh. But again, it's it's a letter in which he lays very bare his heart and says, man, things are really, really hard. And in humility, I'm asking God why this is. So I, I do think he grapples with it at some point, but I'm not sure. Next week or next time. Next time. I want to start at the end. Of the book of Letter to the Romans. Of the Letter to the Romans. Because part of the, so of all of the difficulties of all the letters of finding the other side of the conversation and trying to decipher that, Romans might be the most difficult, partially because it's the longest one. Just by text, it's the longest of the letters. By the way, in your New Testaments, that's the way that the letters are organized. They're not chronological. They're literally organized in your New Testaments by length. So the longest one is first, which is Romans, and then they go shorter and shorter and shorter. That's how the New Testaments look, um, which I thought would surprise you, but you obviously know because I wrote you're my, giving me that. I wrote my uh, I wrote my undergrad thesis on the development of the canon of the New Testament. So, you, I so didn't that's know. why you're giving me that. Side. No, I was just looking no, was at good. you. Um, yeah, so uh, because it's so long, though, it's been called the Mount Everest of Scripture studies because it's just massive. Yeah. But it's also the easiest one to get lost. And what usually gets lost, like I said earlier, is the why. Okay, Paul, you're saying all these amazing, theologically insightful things, but why are you saying them? Like, what prompted you? He's answering questions, but if you don't know the questions that he's answering, you're going to miss it. And he tells us so, the questions at the end? He gives the practical so what's at the end. Cool. So here's what I'll leave you with. And okay. again, we'll look at that next time. I okay. want to start there. And then we'll move into chapter one where he sets out to, to create his argument, right? But here's what we need to know about the letter to the Romans. I think, like I said, it's written probably 65, 66, somewhere around there, but the dating is really important. Something happens in the year 49 and the year 54, which I think are crucial to understanding this letter. So in the year 49, Caesar Augustus is gone and there's another emperor named Claudius who's reigning in Rome. And Claudius, there's a, a right, I'm actually going to read it to you. There's a, a book called the, the Lives of the Caesars, um, which the Roman author named Suetonius, it's just a, a Roman historian. He writes that um, since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of someone named Crestus, he expelled them all from Rome. Claudius did? Yeah. So Suetonius writes that because Caesar Claudius got so fed up with the Jews fighting over some dude named Crestus, which is his garbled Latin, probably version oh, of Christ. Because oh. he's just listening in. But why wouldn't he know about Christ because Christos is so important to Caesar? I don't, either he's mishearing. I, I don't know. Okay. I'm not sure. But either way, what it turns out is the Jews are constantly fighting. Because remember, Jew is seen as an ethnic, ethnic designation, he means, not yeah, a religious right. yeah. one. So the Jews are fighting over someone named Christus, according to Suetonius. Which is to say those Jewish people who have come to Christianity and those who have not. Yeah, Perhaps. yeah, sure. Okay. I think that's right because some are probably saying he's the Messiah. Some are saying he's not. Again, or Rome's maybe the Christian, city. the Jewish Christians are just having fights about liturgy. I mean, that seems reasonable. There's probably a lot of stuff, but imagine, <laughs> but imagine theological fights that get so widespread, presumably so violent and so explicit that the political leader needs to actually squelch it and legally kick you out of the city. So this is something like this is happening. Caesar presumably, and there's some historians who say. Yeah, he might have made the declaration, but it's too hard to actually expel a whole ethnic group. Surely this didn't really happen. But we have all know about the horrible atrocities and ethnically related things that people have done over the years. I see no reason why Caesar having the power Caesar does, if he declares this is supposed to happen, 
I think it happens. So the Jews, by the way, remember in Acts of the Apostles when um, that couple of Prisca and Aquila or Priscilla and Aquila, Priscilla and Aquila yeah. meet with, they stay with Paul, right? Don't they? Paul stays with them. Paul stays with them. Do you know why they're there though? Because they were kicked out of Rome? By Claudius. It literally says in Acts oh. because Claudius had kicked out all the Jews from oh. Rome. So they're staying there. So they're expelled from Rome, which means, well, and then the other year is 54. So five, six years later. The emperor Nero, new emperor, Nero, Caesar, Caesar Nero lets them all back in because before Nero turned super bloodthirsty, he wanted everyone to like him. So he's like, I'll let him come back home. So there's about six years where what happens? So, I mean, the church for its earliest years and decades is a Jewish reality. It's Jewish people who recognize their Messiah has come. Remember, for the first however many, seven chapters of Acts of the Apostles, they had no interest in leaving Jerusalem yeah. and Judea. Mm -hmm. it's, they don't spread the gospel until they're kicked out. Yeah. And then they're like, oh, I guess we can tell the Gentiles too. Like there's no inclination that this is meant to be evangelized until they're forced to do it. So the whole church in Rome- Those who are recounted in Acts. I mean- Yeah, exactly like, right. But yeah. St. Thomas is probably making his way to India during after that time. This, though. Oh, okay. But once the church realizes, oh- I'd probably after the Council of Jerusalem and they're like, oh, there's something new that God's actually calling us to that we didn't realize. Because I think initially when Jesus says, go out to all the nations, make disciples, I think that what they're hearing is go find all of the Jews scattered in the diaspora and tell them that the Messiah has come and make mm -hmm. them disciples. I don't think anyone's thinking we need to convert the world. Again, maybe I'm wrong on that, but based on what happens in Acts, when everyone's so shocked the Gentiles are supposed to be a part of this, that yeah, and it fits didn't. into the kind of me messianic yeah. identity that Judaism yeah. had before, exactly, right. sort of universal vocation. So the church in Rome, presumably, it's all Jewish. The priests are presumably Jewish. The deacons are Jewish. Maybe the deacons were one exception in Acts that they were meant to be Gentiles because oh, everyone right. was forgetting about the Gentiles. So they're like, well, let's make some let's deacons. make some deacons. So, um, but priests, bishops, the house church leaders. It's all probably primarily Jewish. And then all of a sudden, what happens? Claudius kicks you out. Oy vey. So what does the church look like in the intervening six years? In Rome. In Rome, rather. Just the Gentiles Gentile have to become converse? the priests. We better start ordaining some Gentiles and we better Ooh. make them bishops. Well, there were Gentiles in the community. Yeah. Like they're there. They're just not leaders. They're, they're, I don't want to say second class, but in a certain sense. But they're on the periphery of the church. They were on the they're periphery the of the church. Periphery, they were the converts. They're the ones yeah. who can't like, we're, we're happy to have you into this thing that predates you. Yeah. And now all of a sudden, oh, I guess you guys are in charge. Yeah. Like they're all that's left. Scott so Hahn is like, yes. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. But so the church becomes a Gentile reality mm -hmm. for about six years. And then in 54, Nero allows the Jews to come home. And I bet you, I think that's the context for this letter. Oh, and there's because, a lot of conflict. Because, can you imagine? Right. Can you imagine yeah. them coming home and be like, oh, thank you for holding the reins. Like we're happy to pass it back, pass it back now. And they're like, oh, hold on. We're happy you're back. But like, you better get used to it. Like things are different now. There's a Nova Sordo in town. <laughs> yeah, basically. Oh, but, but there is some parallel. There actually, but there are some parallels. There to are some, some contemporary parallels. ecclesial realities, but we don't need to. But get so, so here's the thing: there is going to be a lot. And and again, what we'll see next next time in chapter uh, fourteen and fifteen, you get the practicals of people who only eat certain kinds of meat, or people who esteem one day the Sabbath day is better than. So others. we'll talk like, about that conflict between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in Rome. But but there's a deeper thing, and I'll leave you with this. So there's there's obviously ethnic fighting, and ethnic fighting is a real thing. Like again, I think for a long time we tried to pretend in this part of the world that didn't exist, but it's it's real and the church has dealt with it for a long and time. Contemporarily, I mean, like well, the right, church exactly. in Sub-Saharan Africa is besotted by yes. uh, tribalism, tribalism yeah. disagreements between people. Of and it's hard types, for us yeah. to wrap our heads around right. that. Um, so that's actually, a reality. Sorry. Well, Black Catholics in America I, experience I 
We, it shouldn't be hard yeah, to wrap our heads right, around. Concrete sort of marginalization in various ways that we're not always attentive to. Uh, there's yeah. all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, you know, parishes that don't like, well, I don't like that there's this one mass that's in another language. Yeah. Like there, there's lots of stuff. Yeah. So there's that problem and there's a lot of fighting and Paul will have to basically, you know, say, look, in the plan of God, you're meant to be together. Like yeah. this is a reality. But it's not just, oh, we're fighting with each other. We think we're better. You know, you're lucky we let you in. Oh, you guys got yourselves kicked out. We're better than you. I think both sides are saying they're better. And both sides are saying the other one's worse and trying to lay out all the evidence because Paul will basically cite that. But the deeper question, this is why Romans is Romans. It's not just because let's all get along. It's that, OK, wait a second, though. If the Jews have been expelled and if we are not, yes, we're part of the family of God, but we're not primary anymore because in the church of Rome, it's led by Gentiles. Like we're still here. And Italians, for God's sake. And Italians, right? They're still here, but it's not ours exclusively anymore. And again, aside from the ethnic question, it does beg the question about the integrity of God. Because the question then becomes, no, hold on a second. That, that's great. We're, we're, we're all for this inclusiveness and the evangelization. But God promised in the Old Testament that we were the chosen people. He said we were his segula. He said we were the people so set So that's apart. where the theological questions have right. to be asked about. So the, if you know. we're not anymore, does that mean God has left Israel behind? Does that mean that Israel is forgotten? And if that's true, what does it mean for God's integrity? Is God trustworthy? And if he's not, then you Gentiles, you can't trust that you're going to be the chosen ones either. And those like, are both Christological questions and ecclesiological hugely, questions. Yeah. yeah, hugely so. And that context, though, changes the whole way Romans works. Because if you know that's the big fight going on in the background, then you're going to read the whole letter differently. Because he's, he's staking all of his theological weight on the integrity of God, that God's promises do not change, and that from the beginning, God always intended the people of God to look the way that it does. So next week, we'll talk about the fight in the background. And then what are we going to, where's the roadmap from there? What are we going to do? Yeah. So next week, we'll talk about the fight in the background. Part of his so what is going back through the Old Testament and showing where the Gentiles fit. Okay. Then we'll go back to the beginning in the okay. following episode where actually Paul will rip everybody down. Okay. He'll tear everyone apart and basically say, you big headed people, neither of you have any right to be a part of this kingdom. Okay. And you, you should recognize the grandeur of that. Following that, he says, okay, this is what sin has actually wrought, but here's the blessing of what you've been given. And here's the, the, if you realize what you've been a part of, you'd have more humility toward it. That will take us to the next episode into the central part of the letter, chapters five through eight, in which he extrapolates his beautiful Christology. I'm going to tie it to something called the four harmonies, which I think is a beautiful um, way that Paul lays this out. From there, he's going to deal with the question head on, what do we do with Israel though? What about all of those fellow Jews who have not followed the Messiah? Where do they fit? Mm -hmm. And then we'll go on from there to kind of how we're all meant to live together in the family of God going oh, forward. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Cool. Thanks a lot, Scott, for kicking us off with this episode of Sunday School. I'm excited. Getting into the Book of Romans. I am too. I'm really excited. And Kate? I think it'll be great. I yeah. love having you here in Sunday School. Yeah. This has been fantastic. Yeah. Inviting me into the classroom. Yeah. Kate's going to share the hosting duties with me this season of Sunday School, um, but we'll all be back. Sunday School is uh, brought to you by Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira, who is also my co-host. I'm JD Flynn and our Sunday School teacher, the patrician himself, <laughs> Scott Powell. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't Roman, I don't know, patrician.